the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, waking from winter hibernation for a yummy snack of long pig. Arcs of fire and unicorns of doom. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a very special Christmas podcast this time featuring a remembrance and retrospective discussion of the late, great Ben Bova. Ben, who passed away on November 29th of this year at the age of 88, was one of the true greats and giants of science fiction. And to celebrate and remember Ben, we have called on another true great and giant of the field, and that is Orson Scott Card. Why Orson Scott Card, you may ask, because Ben Bova, bought the short story that would become the novel Ender's Game. Also joining us is Les Johnson, most excellent longtime Bain author, NASA scientist, and co-author with Ben Bova of science fiction novel Rescue Mode. I myself was privileged to know Ben and to be Ben Bova's editor on a handful of books, including his standalone novel, Mars Incorporated the Billionaire Club which was, as was often the case with Ben Bova, totally prescient and cool science fiction with a layer of melodramatic goodness among the characters. So that is coming up, and we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. We are in the last days of our ebook special for December. From now till the end of the year, there are discounts on all Michael Z. Williamson ebooks. It's the Williamson Holiday Mayhem ebook sale, a barrage of Christmas savings. For example, $2 off Freehold Series Anthology Freehold Resistance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson, with stories by Larry Correa, Brad Torgerson, Mike Massa, Casey Ezel, and more. Plus, through December, $1 off on all other Michael Z. Williamson ebooks, including everything in Mike's Freehold series. These discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. Hey, the December eARCs are here. Now, an eARC is that moment when everyone on Earth gets deja vu simultaneously, along with a little tingle in your knees and other sockets as your soul jumps in ecumenical sympathy with an angel getting his wings. Uh, no, no, no. An eARC is an electronic advanced reader copy of a book. It's an ebook version of the galleys. And we will sell this to you in all its unproofread glory, but months in advance. So you can get your favorite series or try a new author long before the quivering masses. We offer you the chance to quiver first and best. Now out in eARC is At the End of the Journey by Charles E. Gannon, A Misfit Crew, A World to Save from Zombie Rage. The Misfit Crew, six mismatched teenagers from every part of society and their crusty British captain aboard the catch, cross-current Voyager, are headed 
on a senior year summer cruise to excitement and adventure, maybe a little science done along the way. Then the world ends. Zombie apocalypse. Now the crew must step up to leadership or face disaster. Also out now in e-art form is Blood and Whispers by A.C. Haskins. The most dangerous weapon is a past scorned. Thomas Quinn is a sorcerer haunted by the memories of the things he's done over centuries of service to the Arcanum. Now to solve a mystery, Quinn must reluctantly take up the mantle of a sorcerer of the Arcanum once more. Thomas Quinn is prepared to fight rogue sorcerers and fey monsters, but the greatest threat he may face is own inner demons. He arcs for Blood and Whispers by A.C. Haskins, and At the End of the Journey by Charles E. Gannon are now available exclusively at Bane.com. Check them out. The following is a retrospective and remembrance of the great Ben Bova, legendary science fiction author and editor. Ben Bova was born in Philadelphia during the Great Depression. He grew up pretty poor and spent a lot of time visiting the planetarium in Philadelphia, getting into the spirit of science. He graduated from Temple University in his hometown in the 1950s and received a journalism degree there. He won six Hugo Awards as an editor and served as the president of the Science Fiction Writers of America, multi-term president and President Emeritus, eventually, of the National Space Society. He also served as the editor of Analog Magazine and the editorial director of Omni Magazine. Ben was a technological realist. His character drama revolved around the effects of technology and science. As Ben said once, I write hard science fiction because I've been interested in scientific research since I was a preteen. I started by being turned on to astronomy. This led me to rocketry and astronautics and to reading science fiction. I have worked with engineers and scientists most of my adult life. So when I started writing seriously, naturally, I wrote about what and who I knew best. Ben was editor of Analog after John Campbell from 1971 to 1977. It's a very momentous period. He published Spider Robinson's Crosstime Salon series, Larry Niven, was published in Analog. Robert Lynn Asprin's first publication, Lee Kennedy, George R.R. R. Martin, Joe Haldeman, and Orson Scott Card. And now we present our interview with Orson Scott Card and Les Johnson talking about science fiction giant, Ben Bova. Hey, welcome to the podcast. We have with us Les Johnson and Orson Scott Card. We are gathered today to talk about the late, great science fiction author and editor, Ben Bova, whose pictures appear around me, um, who died uh, November 29th, 2020, at the age of 88. Um, first of all, let me, let me briefly introduce Les and Scott. Um, let me give you a little background on these two. Orson Scott Card, the author of Ender's Game, Ender's Shadow, Speaker for the Dead. Um, I haven't done the full research, but I believe Scott is perhaps the best-selling science fiction author of all time, or at least one of them. Um, one reason for this is because Ender's Game is taught in all the, the American high schools these days. Um, and when I taught at the college level, if anybody ever had only read one science fiction novel, it was Ender's Game. 
Um, and I came across that over and over again. For many people, that's, that's the science fiction. That's what they know when they think about science fiction. Besides the science fiction novels, Scott has, he writes contemporary fantasy, the great Alvin uh, books, and just a, a lot of plays and scripts. He started as a playwright, I believe he did. Yeah. And uh, he lives in Greensboro, North Carolina, with his wife, Christine, and apparently feeds many birds, squirrels, chipmunks, possums, and raccoons on the patio, according to his, his bio. Um, Les is a physicist and author with Ben Bova. He's the author of Rescue Mode, which I have a copy of here. Show that. Um, this is the hardcover, and it's it's got a pay, trade paperback and ebook, of course. Um, he is the co-author of Back to the Moon, Onto the Asteroid, and upcoming Saving Proxima with Travis S. Taylor, um, co-editor of that great science fiction, uh, science fact anthology we did, um, Going Interstellar, and what was that last one we did? Solaris, Love. People of the Stars. Solaris, People of the Stars, which is which is also a science fiction, science fact anthology. And um, the author of Mission to Methany, the solo novel you did, your great uh, little Clarkian sort of take on science fiction. And by day, he serves as solar cell principal investigator of NASA's uh, interplanetary solar cell mission and leads research on other advanced space propulsion technologies. He lives in Huntsville, where NASA dwells. Um, so Ben Bova, um, I was his editor on five books. Uh, I, I believe I can also, like many people in the genre, say he was a friend of mine, um, hung out with him, liked him, never, ever had a bad experience when Ben was around. Um, he was born in Philadelphia during the Great Depression. He grew up poor, um, spent a lot of time visiting the planetarium he always talks about. And he talks about his, his childhood. And that's where he got into that, that spirit of science. He graduated from Temple. He was a journalist major, and he was always a journalist, which re really explains a lot about his prose style. I mean, he wanted clarity, and uh, he got it. And, and he was a journalist for about 10 years before he finally joined that, uh, that uh, tech firm that built the heat shield on, on one of the Apollos. Um, and he was uh, like the the explainer of what the engineers were doing for that firm. And he moved on, became editor. He, he was writing all during this time. Um, and his novels began to come out. And um, he was writing for Campbell at Analog, the famous science fiction magazine. And uh, when Campbell died, they went through a bunch of different writers who had worked there, um, at, thinking about who might be his replacement and I believe Campbell's assistant was kind of pushing for Ben too. And uh, they took him on. And so he became editor at Analog during uh, a good portion of the 70s, which saw some amazing debuts of some amazing writers, um, which we will talk about. Among them being uh, uh, Joe Haldeman, which, who wrote the first version of The Forever War, um, George R.R. R. Martin, Larry Niven, uh, Robert Asprin, this guy, Scott Card, uh, who wrote several, several stories for Ben and got some rejected too, um, which I hope we can talk about. Um, and uh, after that, he went on to become editorial director at Omni Magazine for a few years where he, where he bought more Card stories and others um, and sort of set it up to go forward for being the, the great science fiction market of the 1980s. And he just wanted to write and he started writing after that. He wrote this, the Grand Tour, and it was science fiction. Um, 
eventually he won six Hugo Awards as editor. He was the president of the Science Fiction Writers of America and the National Space Society, the president emeritus. I mean, it's, it's hard to just talk about this guy um, in, uh, in any human terms. He seemed godlike in so many ways. Um, his survivor, he, he married, uh, he married young and got divorced. They had a couple of kids by that marriage who are still around and, and gave him a moving uh, tribute to him. His son did. And uh, then he married Barbara Bova, who uh, was a, a literary agent and, and together they did a lot of agenting as well over the years. Um, and after Barbara died, he remarried. Um, and I knew her who was, uh, who, who's still around. Uh, Rashida, Dr. Rashida uh, Loya Bova, who um, is an anesthesiologist who one time detailed to me how one anesthetizes an eye for an operation, which really, <laughs> which fascinated Ben and kind of creeped me out. But anyway, it, it was a happy late life uh, romance and marriage as well. And they were a great couple. Um, so, uh, what did we say about Ben's writing? He was a technological realist. Um, his character dramas, they were, sometimes they were soap opery, but they always revolved around the effects of technology and science. Um, he said that he writes, he wrote science fiction because he thought that that was about reality and that was where things were going. Um, he loved the idea of power sats, solar power satellites, nuclear energy, organic molecules, immortality. Um, Maybe that's a good way to segue into Les, um, talking a little bit about rescue mode and working with Ben. Um, I mean, you do stuff like power sats and think about things like that at NASA. Well, I think about it for, for, for work and for writing. You're right. Uh, but, but before I jump into that, I just want to say I had the opportunity to collaborate with Ben, but that's been fairly recently. His paths and mine intersected in some interesting ways over the years, and he had a profound impact on my professional career. I, I started reading uh, science fiction heavily, like a lot of people do, right, in high school, middle school, and that just happened to be in the 70s, and that was when he was editing Analog. And so I was very familiar with his name and read a lot of his stuff, and then I guess it was in the late 70s when I had decided I wanted to be a physicist, I, I read his Kinsman saga, um, which, is, uh, which, which is basically the power politics of space development and laser-based defenses and all that, which later became SDI. And I ended up working on SDI. The first uh, two and a half years of my, uh, right out of graduate school, I moved to Huntsville and worked for a defense contractor. And I was working on laser and neutral particle beam weapons in space. And the whole time I was doing it, I was thinking of stuff I read uh, by Ben Bova. So, you know, he, he had an influence on my professional life as well as being a writer. It was, it was profound. And uh, I had all the Omnis for the years he was editor. I still have them. Uh, they're in a box in my basement. I, in fact, one of the things that I did to prep for today is I went through all my old autograph books because I knew I had several autographed by Ben trying to figure out when I first met him. When did we first cross paths? And we crossed paths in 1984 somewhere. I don't know where, but I have an autograph book from him from that era. But I really got to know him in uh, the early 90s when I, uh, in Huntsville, I was a part of a, a group called the Huntsville uh, Area Technical Societies, and I was the president of the local chapter of the World Futures Society. And I was the program chairman for a local technical conference, and I had to bring in speakers, and they gave me a budget. So I had just read the Mars, his Mars book. So I said, well, why not? I'll invite Ben Bova. He's always been an inspiration. And so we brought him in. 
had him here at the house, got to know him, got to meet my family. We, we've corresponded since then. He gave a great talk at that exhibition. And uh, then when I would go to conventions and see him, I don't know that he remembered me immediately. I'd always have to remind him, hey, you came to Huntsville because he met so many different people. Um, and, and kept up with him for that times and always enjoying, like you said, I, I never had a crossword with him. He was just very nice, very encouraging, um, just incredibly so in, in every interaction that I had with him. But as, as a writer, you wanted to know about the collaboration. The first path cross we had is when I edited with Jack McDevitt, the Going Interstellar anthology. And I reached out to Ben to provide a story for that because I knew he'd given a lot of thought about realistic issues going to the stars. Yeah, he has a story in there. I remember it. Yeah, it's, it's the uh, a country May for December romance story. Yeah, it? that's exactly right. Yeah. And it's a, it's a wonderful story. Uh, it, it, it brings you into the characters and the people and, and what's going to happen aboard these ships. And AI, like you mentioned, the litany of all the stuff he thought about, had AIs and pulsars and bizarre ramjets. I mean, it was just great, great fun. Um, but when we did that book, that he, he provided that story. And it wasn't long after that that I'll, I'll never forget the day. Uh, uh, your, the publisher, Bain, Tony Weisskopf, uh, she, she sent me an email. And said, hey, Les, I've been talking to Ben Bova. Uh, would you like to do a book with Ben? Well, you know, this is one of those times where you, you're asked to work with your, you know, the vision of perfection here, right? Um, if if I, This is one of those times that I wish we were back in the day of, of mail going through U.S. Post. Because if that had been a handwritten letter from Tony, I, I would have saved it and framed it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and put it on the wall, you know, being flattered to, to, to work with someone like Ben. So I agreed. I'd be foolish not to. And I was, I have to admit, I was pretty nervous because I hadn't published that many books. I had uh, written only with Travis. I hadn't done a first solo novel yet. And uh, he had an idea for the book and, and he sent it to me and we had a start date we had worked out because he was busy on some other projects. And so the first thing I did is I went out and I found his book, How to Write Science Fiction That Sells. I don't know if you're aware, he wrote, you probably are since you taught a class. He wrote a book on how to write science fiction. So I thought, you know. Yeah. I used to use his book and Scott's book, Writer's <laughs> Digest book, Characters and Viewpoint, which is the greatest book on writing I've ever read, by the way, Scott. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, as my teaching text. But go ahead, Les. Well, no, no, I'm sorry. Interrupt me. I don't want to be a monologue here, but. Um, so I read his book, How to Write Science Fiction to Cells, and I reread his Mars book and a couple other sections. I didn't reread all the books that he'd written that I had, but I, I started picking up and skimming and looking back through because if I was going to write with him, I wanted to get in his head and think the way he thought about writing a book. So I did all that background work before we actually started talking and collaborating. And uh, it was a very different experience for me because I'm a, a physicist and at NASA, I work on projects and everything is thought out before you do it. You, you plan everything out. I'm a plotter when I write. Uh, I don't know what's gonna happen every step of the way, but I know the general story arc. I have notes for each chapter, kind of what we wanna have happen or what I wanna have happen. And so that's how I had worked with Travis and that's how I started envisioning like my first solo novel. And even done that in short stories. But Ben said, oh, Les, I'm, I'm not a plotter. <laughs> he said, I'm a pantser. <laughs> and I said, oh, what, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, right by the seat of your pants. Here's the idea. So he, he threw the story out. It's a Mars mission where something goes wrong. 
And I said, oh, okay. And he said, and here are the characters I want to use. So he gave me character sheets, which were very broad. And I said, well, what, what do you want to talk about? What could be the things that go wrong? And he said, oh, no, no, you just start and send me 30,000 words and we'll go from there. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, Scott, if that relates to your experience with working with Ben, but that's how it worked. I, I wrote some stuff and he was great. He came back and said, Les, this won't work. We need to change this. I suggest we do this. He wrote 20,000 words. We bounced back and forth. He was very gracious when I, when I asked him, oh, should we change this or that? You know, in some cases he said, yeah, you're right. That really makes more sense. Um, and we did it. And the book, the, the final product was one of the best the books that sold the best of any of mine, of course. And it's a large part. Because yeah, yeah. That's his name and here it. it is again. Yeah. Rescue Everybody Mode. See that? Rescue Mode. Yeah. So um, it was a lot of Garnered fun. Garnered some really great reviews. It's, it's about a Mars trip that goes awry. And that's uh, exactly the, right. the interaction of the characters within that, that trip, which is that's, that's a Ben Bova story right there. It's like, that's what happens in Ben Bova stories is like, what does the science fiction do to these human relationships? Um, so, so that's him as a writer. Um, he spent a good portion. I mean, he's, he got famous as an editor um, as well. Um, Scott, maybe we could talk about uh, your initial experiences for, let me ask you both before we get into that, um, because I really want to hear that as long form. Um, you're, one other thing about Ben is he's an, he was an atheist. He was an ethical atheist. Both of you are believers. Um, how is uh, interacting with him? That, that's the thing about it. It's, it's like it doesn't matter what you were, who you were. He, he made you feel comfortable and, and there with him. I'd like to get that in, but just to make sure I get it in before Les has to go. Um, well, sure. Why don't you go ahead and, and discuss your uh, uh, experience with Ben on that? Well, I, I don't have one. Uh, okay. It turns yeah. out that he didn't, he didn't take your faith away, Les. <laughs> uh, no, the, the faith <laughs> aspect of it never really came up a whole lot. Uh, oh, oh, mm -hmm. Well, actually, it kind of did. Actually, I, I take that back. It did. Um, in in rescue mode, there was uh, a character that uh, fell in love, and he and this woman fell in love on the trip, and it's a two and a half year round trip, and they are very, very much in love, and. Uh, there was a strong desire by uh, to, to consummate that, but there, they weren't married. And I, I actually insisted, uh, not because I'm a prude, but because I believe that there are some people who still believe in the, in the sanctity of marriage and that some things are a part of what is only in a married relationship. And I said, well, you know, we have a lot of stories where people just go ahead and consummate the relationship on board the spacecraft and worry about the details later. But I think there are still people of faith and so I had this character in the book insist that they get somebody on the radio from Earth to marry them uh, so that they could officially be a couple. And uh, Ben, he didn't, he didn't say, don't do that. But he did question me about that. He said, come on, are you serious? Do you really believe that there would be people like that? And I said, well, yes, I'm one. At least I think I would like to have that kind of moral turpitude. And, and I also work with and know a lot of people like that who would, who would take a similar stance. And how hard is it to get somebody to marry you over the radio, right? Um, so that, that was as close as we got to that kind of discussion. And it led to a question of, you know, would people have that kind of uh, moral compass in the future, given the secularization of the society? And, and, and not all the characters on board ship are that way. It's read the story. I mean, they, they span the spectrum of human behavior and attitudes toward religion. Uh, 
but I, but I thought, well, why not have somebody who has a, a, a different moral compass on board the craft? So that's as yeah. close as we got. Did you ever talk to I, him about that, Scott? Uh, that's the funny thing is that as soon as Les said that uh, uh, it never came up, that's exactly what my experience was. It just didn't come up. I had no idea whether he was rela- uh, raised in a religious home. Uh, you know, with uh, Isaac Asimov, you always knew his background and so on. But with Ben, it was simply not a topic of conversation. And since we never collaborated on a book, I never had a time when he had a vote on uh, what my characters did. But I will say that, that even while I was uh, writing stories for Ben, it became a sort of a cause of mine, not to promote religion, but to have characters who had a religious aspect to their lives because everybody has a religion. Even people who are absolutely adamant that they have no religion, that's their religion. And they're quite religious about it and they proselytize. But Ben was not one who was a true believer in atheism in the sense that he had to proselyte uh, for it, had to try to convert people. Uh, He just left other people's beliefs alone. But he has uh, things that he had, things that he believed that uh, were unbreakable. His word was his bond. Uh, he didn't think it was because God was going to punish him if he broke his word. It's just because that's the kind of man he wanted to be, and that's the kind of man he was. And so uh, whatever his source of ethics might have been, uh, he never seemed to have any problem with the fact that I had characters who had this or that religious faith. Uh, It was just not a problem because he wasn't out to try to expunge religion from the future. Uh, He was simply out to publish uh, stories and books that would sell. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's so much old school about Ben that was, that was like this, this, this personage from a time before there were all these value controversies that we always are just going through today. And you could just get along with somebody like him that uh, you could have a drink with the guy and you both knew you believed different things, but uh, you found common ground that's so hard to do these days. I think that was, that's one of the great things about science fiction. At least it used to be. It used to be, isn't now. But uh, he, uh, he had the old standard of behavior that said, when you're dining with somebody, you don't discuss politics or religion. It just wrecks the meal. And uh, so the only time I ever heard him discuss religion was when he was mocking the force in Star Wars. <laughs> Uh, that's as close as we came. And since there are, I think, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people for whom that is as close to religion as they come, uh, the dark side and light side of the force, this Manichaeism of uh, George Lucas's Lutheran upbringing, I'm not quite sure how that worked, but uh, it's still one of the dumbest religions ever invented. Uh, but to hear Ben go off on it when Star Wars was brand new is just wonderful. Yeah, close your eyes and aim your, you know, let, 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 let your brain aim something without looking. That's so clever. And uh, he, just, he just really went off on the stupidity of, of Star Wars. Um, but that's as close as I ever heard him come to disparaging anybody's religion. And come on, it was a dumb religion for a fairly dumbly plotted science fiction movie. Yeah, that's the true atheism, not to believe in the sport, than the force. And that's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. You're really going against what people. So, uh, you're so- going to get, you're going to get such hate mail on this. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Um, so, uh, 
tell us about Ben as an editor and just, and, and tell us about, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, Ender's Game was the first thing you sold to him. You sold that thing about the music prodigy kid. No, that, that was, that was after. That was after. You know, I, I have a three hour version of this. I'm not going to do that today. Okay. You're, you're so grateful. Uh, but when I, I had started a theater company in Provo, Utah, and now I know that it was a rousing success. But all I knew then was that I ended the first summer season with about a thousand, a uh, little over a thousand dollars that I had no way of repaying. I was working as an editor at uh, Brigham Young University Press. Uh, they were paying me in small bags of dirt, not very fertile dirt either, I'll tell you, because it was in Utah, so everything was desert. But um, I had no prospects for paying it off, but I thought, okay, the one thing I know how to do is write. I know that I can lose money at plays, writing plays for the rest of my life and be considered uh, successful. So I needed to write something else. Now I had read some science fiction novels. I had never opened a copy of any science fiction magazine ever. Um, they weren't newsstand item where I lived. And so I uh, had seen in Writer's Market a listing for analog science fact slash fiction. And they are the only science fiction magazine that ever put anything in there. And I'm sure that meant that their slush pile was full of things by people who had no idea what science fiction was. But I had read a lot of science fiction. In fact, most recently I had read Zena Henderson with all of her uh, characters who have psionic abilities and so on. So I had this series of stories I'd been working on, I'd been envisioning, uh, the, what I called the Worthing Saga in my head. It's now out as a book, and many of those stories that I wrote in those days are included, but I sent one of them off to Ben called The Tinker, and I was proud of it. I, that was the best writing I would ever do in my life, I was sure. And I got it back from him with a very nice note saying, I like the way you write. I'd like to see more by you, but please keep in mind that Analog is a science fiction magazine and not fantasy. Well, now, I had as much justification for the psionic abilities in uh, Tinker as Zena Henderson ever had for it in, in her uh, fiction. But then I realized, no, no, that's not what separates science fiction and fantasy. In publishing terms, there, here's, the, here's the division. And, and I'm in helping everyone illuminate this because people can argue, well, it's what could happen. All right, time travel, you think that could happen, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and what I, what I realized was this. Fantasy has trees, science fiction has rivets. And Tinker was full of trees, no rivets uh, in sight. And so it felt uh. like fantasy. Uh, you know, and, and the word for world is forest by Le Guin, you know, still has people arriving in a spaceship, come on. So there are rivets somewhere in it. And uh, you can see it on the cover. You know when they want to appeal to a sci-fi audience and when they want to appeal to a, a fantasy audience. So. I'd had this idea that occurred to me when I was 16 about a battle school. And I had known at the time that I had no story to go with it, but I'd been thinking about it for years since then. I, it had been about nine years before, eight years before. Anyway, I had some ideas for how the battle school would work as a training ground for soldiers preparing to, and, and for future commanders preparing to think in three-dimensional space. It was a good idea. It was based on something by Nordhoff and Hall, uh, a book about World War I flying uh, you know, pilots. 
in the uh, French, in the, the Escadrille uh, Lafayette, Lafayette Escadrille, I'm not sure how it goes, and I can't pronounce French anyway, so we'll, we'll pretend that I didn't try that. Um, and so... That's exactly uh, right, Scott. Okay, to pretend I didn't try that, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so in that one, I had learned that the thing that killed the most pilots, or at least as one experienced pilot uh, advised the newbies is, they kept thinking in the horizontal as if they were on a planet where everything was tied to the ground. And they said, no, you're up in the air. And the guy that kills you is not going to come from a direction where if you sweep your eyes left and right, you'll see him. He knows better than that. He's not an idiot. He's going to come to you out of the sun. He's going to come to you from behind and below. Uh, you're going to suddenly find bullets flying upward into your aircraft without any idea of where they're coming from. And so you need to have a constant scan in every direction. I thought, if that's true for uh, aviation, where down is a constant uh, subject of, of uh, importance, what about in space where there is no down? Where every direction could be down depending on where the nearest uh, massive uh, object is. And uh, so that was where I'd gotten. But I drove a... Uh, uh, kind of girlfriend, kind of meaning, nah, not really. But uh, I thought maybe. Uh, but I drove her to, and, and uh, the two kids of her boss uh, to the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City where she had been assigned by her boss to take his kids to the circus. But she didn't have a ticket for me and that was fine because I have never enjoyed circuses. So I sat on the lawn outside the Salt Palace, opened a notebook, I'd done all my playwriting in, in notebooks. Open a notebook and wrote, quote, remember the enemy's gate is down, unquote. Because in that moment I had realized, you don't want to train these people at age 18 or 19. Uh, they already have their minds set in the gravitational mode. You want to get them when they're five, six, seven years old, so that they grow up without the expectation of gravity. But I had Ender use the, the vocabulary of gravity to help focus them on what their objective was, et cetera, et cetera. And I, the first draft is essentially what got published, except for Ben's intervention. Now, I, uh, I wrote it in longhand to start with. And so my mom, who was a hundred word per minute typist, the kind of person who, on the, if she makes an error on the last letter of the bottom, at the bottom of the page, she just tears it out and starts over because it's faster to retype the whole page than to correct. Uh, and so she uh, typed it for me and I sent it off to Analog because that's, the, the, that's who I knew an address for. And besides, Ben had said, I want to see more. So I reminded him of that and sent him the story and not quite by return mail, but pretty soon afterward, I got it back. Uh, by the way, an amazing response for a rejection because no other editor was ever as quick with me as Ben. Uh, but he sent it back and uh, he said, well, this is a, this is a good start. Um, it needs to be cut in half. And I would suggest changing the title to Professional Soldier. Now, as a magazine title, Professional Soldier was a good choice. But as the beginning of what I hoped would be a long life for this story, um, it needed to be Ender's game. Besides, I'd made his name Enderwigan, and in those pre-computer days, it was just too hard to change a character name. Had to retype the whole thing. 
even, you know, I didn't want to make my mother retype it just to change the name Ender to some other thing that I didn't like as well. So, so you're you, you, that was your original title of the story. Then. Oh, yeah, it was Ender's Game, and it was substantially what was published. But when Ben said cut it in half, I knew that was never going to work. I don't write cuttable things. Uh, if the scene doesn't need to be there, it, is, it already isn't there. But I realized there was one exception. I was so in love with the idea of battle school that I had too many battles. So I took Ben's cut it in half to mean I got bored a couple of times. And so I cut out one and a half battles, uh, summarized both of them. They still happened. They just, we didn't have to watch them unfold. And uh, then I also made a couple of other changes to enhance characters so that it ended up being exactly as long as the version that Ben had rejected for being too long. Uh, and I sent that new version back to him with a letter that did not remind him of what he had asked me to do because wh why would he remember? Uh, why, why borrow trouble by saying, <laughs> well, you told me to cut it in half, but I'm, I didn't do that. What I said was, I addressed the issues you raised and I've come to the conclusion that I want to stick with the title Ender's Game. Uh, and uh, I hope that you like this version of the story. And he did. My response from him was a check for X number of dollars. I can't even remember the amount. I thought it would be imprinted on my mind forever. But it was at analog rates, so I think maybe $450 with their little imprint on it that says they buy all rights. And so I endorsed the check, and that made a contract that gave all rights to Ender's Game to Condé Nast. Now, they didn't stick with that. Uh, you know, he assigned that was a uh, Yeah, that was the Campbell thing, wasn't it? Well... But anyway, by, by, the, by the time uh, 1978 rolled along, there was a new uh, copyright law and that wasn't even legal anymore. Uh, but in those days, you know, this was in 1976 that he bought it. Uh, here, the, the funny thing is, I at first did not intend to rewrite it. I didn't, I thought Ben's uh, suggestion of cutting it in half was ridiculous. So I sent the same story off to Jim Bain uh, at Galaxy. And he held it for a year and uh, I got a rejection. Little explanation, but it just wasn't for him. And I thought, oh, well, maybe Ben's my only recourse. And that's when I went back to the manuscript and made some revisions to try to respond to Ben because Ben gave me hope. He gave me an avenue and I realized. Yeah. Are you saying what you he double did. submitted a short story? No, no, no. It was already rejected by Ben. So oh, I, see. I, I sent it afterward to, uh, to Jim. Oh, okay. All right. And Jim, Jim and I became friends. We reconciled. So uh, that yeah. wasn't, you know, wasn't I bet he wish you'd bought that thing. No, Scott, no, I don't, Scott, think, I have to tell I don't you, think that's where I read your story was in analog. I yeah. Well, I'm, reading I'm, that the, so that's cool that, that you, uh, that you read it there. Here's the thing, the month before my story was going to come out, it was going to be in the August 77 issue of Analog. So in the July issue, or maybe it was June, I don't remember how, because I don't think it was every month. But in a previous issue, in the uh, uh, section that was about uh, in times to come, what's coming up in the magazine, he said, next month, we have a wonderful story by a fabulous new writer. And I thought he was talking about me. And then the issue comes and the cover is given to uh, Robert Aspirin's Cold Cash War, which was the lead cover story. And it was his first publication. And I realized he wasn't talking about me. He was talking about Robert Aspirin. And oh, that, 
was a little stab in my heart. I thought Ben isn't really that excited about Ender's Game. What I didn't understand, as he told me later when I mentioned this to him, he said, uh, I chose the lead story by what would help sell the magazine. And, and I got a great cover from uh, Bob Asprin's story. Um, I knew what Ender's Game would do, he said. But readers like to feel like they discovered it themselves. Mm. They don't like to feel like they've been guided to it by the editor. So he said, so I knew that Ender's Game would attract its own following without any help from me, uh, without any promotion from the editor. Well, he did provide help. He published it, darn it. That's, you know. But uh, uh, that was the story of my getting that that's that uh, uh, short story that was the foundation of my career published in that magazine. But here's the thing. That didn't mean that I was Ben's fair haired boy and he was going to publish everything I wrote. No, you're, story. you're kind of a tree guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am actually, I, my, everything that I write is, is about the people and I'm as happy writing fantasy as science fiction. My knowledge of science is what I gained by reading Larry Niven's science fiction and uh, reading Scientific American from time to time. You know, that, I'm just a dabbler in science. I know enough about science to recognize when I'm seeing really stupidly bad science or dishonest science because so much of that is around right now. But uh, what I'm not is somebody who can get a job at a uh, defense department contractor. Uh, so less is actually what I wished I were, but you had to know too much math. And I gave up on math. My last math class in high school was geometry, never took another. Uh, got a D the second semester of geometry, A the first semester, D the second semester, because I just didn't care. And then at Brigham Young University, I fulfilled the math requirement by taking a logic class from the philosophy department and by taking a, uh, an honors program survey course called Structure of Mathematics, in which I learned about math, but never had to do any. So, you know, I got to play with Moby strips and climb bottles and, and et cetera, but I never actually had to do any calculation of any kind whatsoever. I was happy, I, I fulfilled my math requirement and I was done. Uh, so there was no way I could ever go down that road. Uh, there, I was never a threat to anybody like Ben or, Larry Niven or uh, Les Johnson. I mean, I was never going to be in your playing field. Well, Les, um, is math important in science? Because I don't know. Uh. In science, in my field of science, yeah, it's everything. Okay. <laughs> in is, physics uh, and spacecraft engineering, oh yeah. Um, yeah, you can't just wing it with your subconscious, like you know. No, not in not in this job. I had a, uh, okay. a boss who had a great uh, uh, sign behind his desk. He's now since passed away, but a few years ago, and it, it left an indelible impression on me. And he and it relates to the, the the theology thing we just talked about here. He said, you know, the sign said, "I trust God. Everyone else bring data." <laughs> That's cool. That's and, cool. And, and that, really, that really speaks to my day-to-day -day work experience, right? And the weird thing is, that's what I teach my writing students, is you've got to know what you're talking about, uh, whether they're writing science fiction or not. So many people write embarrassingly bad fiction because they didn't do any research at all. Uh, they just figure that, that whatever's in their memory is good enough, and it's not. Uh, so when I'm writing a contemporary uh, or recent history novel or story, 
I research it. If, if they're going to listen to a pop song, I have to know it was already released and would probably and was recent enough that it would be on the radio. Or I change songs. I had to do that in my novel, Lost Boys. The plot of the novel, everything, the relationship of characters needed the police song, Every Breath You Take. But it didn't come out until three months after my novel was over. And so I had to choose another song that did an adequate job. But I just could not put a time error like that into into the fiction and there's so many writers who don't care about that but i do so while i'm not you'll never be able to build a spaceship to my specifications in a science fiction story because i black box everything like us good fantasy writers do uh, but nevertheless uh i have great respect for those who know what they're talking about and i listen to them i learn from them and they are my entire science education I mean, my entire chemistry, I never had chemistry in high school. I, I graduated after three years. So I missed the year of chemistry and I never had chemistry in college. It wasn't required. And so my entire education in chemistry is Isaac Asimov's book on organic chemistry. I never learned to build a bomb, but I did get some good ideas about how to build RNA. Um, and so, you know, I was able to play with things because I knew enough of the vocabulary from, from Isaac Asimov. And that, that's good enough. You know, I, I got the education I needed to tell the stories I wanted to tell. But Ben did not buy my next two stories right away. I had a little story called Follower, and he said, well, this is good as far as it goes, but it doesn't end yet. And I thought, wow, this is the ending I had when I started. And I had, to me, it ends. But he suggested some things, and I went ahead and wrote more on the end. It wasn't a great story, but he published it. And then I sent him a story called Malpractice, uh, and he rejected it with prejudice, but said, uh, make it sound scientifically plausible and see if, if uh, we can make it work. And again, it doesn't end. And I thought it did. So I, I revised those two stories massively for Ben. And then my next three submissions, he rejected. Mm. No hope, no suggestion that I return it. Uh, I was I was sure my, my career was over. So I looked, I thought, okay, there's only one story of mine that he actually liked. And it was Ender's Game. Now, this was all before Ender's Game came out. I was still flailing around. And, uh, and so I said, what does Ender's Game have? It has a kid in jeopardy who has some amazing power. And so I came up with what is basically a fantasy idea, but there are spaceships all over, lots of rivets. So... It was Michael Songbird that ended up becoming Songmaster. Uh, and I sent it off to him. And then that day realized that I had made several errors in what, not, not like technical errors, but errors in what should have been included. Different things should happen. So I rewrote it that night and sent it off to him the next morning and said, please ignore the first version. Please read this one only. And he did, and I got a return check, just as I did with Ender's Game. So I thought, okay, so imitating myself works. Uh, but then again, I, I couldn't stand that. I never liked to write the same story twice. So uh, I did not go ahead and keep imitating Ender's Game. But that's what Songmaster was, was my but you did. Of my own work. He did force you to analyze it, which was yeah. is an interesting, I mean, I don't know if he meant to do that, but by rejecting you, that's what happened and made you internalize what you did with that thing. Absolutely. And I've spent my life analyzing Andrew's game. I've got to say, I did 25 drafts of movie scripts 
uh, <laughs> trying to find a way to put the actual character event on the screen. But my 25th try, I succeeded. Uh, Andrew was in it because I finally understood how he worked as a character. But nobody ever read that script. Uh, I got paid for it because there was a contract, but the guy who directed it was writing his own script. He never read my script at all, any of my drafts. So, uh, mm. and it ended up, he made all the mistakes I had made in drafts one, two, and three. And so he did not profit from my experience. That's fine. Uh, it was a medium crummy movie and uh, it used up my biggest property. And so there I am. But uh, here's the thing about Ben. Um, he cared whether his uh, stable of writers succeeded, but he wasn't jealous when we submitted stories to other people. It didn't bother him that I sent some of my best work to fantasy and science fiction. Uh, I don't know if he read it because uh, his job wasn't to read everything uh, that published by other people. But I do know that when I sent something to him, I got a quick response. Now that you know, was- I think you, you're mentioning something that's pretty important about the relationship that, that I think a lot of people had with Ben. And it's been common whenever his name has come up when I've been at conventions, and I think you said it, is that he was genuine or, or something of that nature, yeah. right? And, and all the interactions I had with him at conventions, when we were writing a book, Ooh. editing a short story, in every conversation, you, you got the sense that this was a person who was listening to you, was going to be candid with you, but not insultingly so. He was just genuine. No. Ben had no compulsion to compete with Harlan about being, you know, in fact, I can't remember. I think it was Ben who told me that uh, some writers need to have an agent who's tough as nails because they're such pushovers that they'd better not negotiate for themselves or they'll be robbed all the time. And he said, but other uh, authors need to have agents who can go in and smooth all the ruffled feathers and make everybody happy so they don't get ejected from the publishing company the next time they show up. And he said, you know, Harlan needs the nice kind of editor and uh, I mean, the nice kind of uh, agent. And he said, but you need a tough as nails agent. And that, that's, <laughs> I think that was a conversation that we had at a hotel uh, where we were dining in uh, San Francisco, uh, where he introduced uh, Barbara to me and suggested that she be my agent. Since I had no idea how to find an agent or even barely what an agent did, I said yes, without any consultation with anybody. Uh, she was new then, starting out, but she already knew everybody because she'd had a life in publishing. So it ended up being very happy, but Ben was not my agent. He didn't stop buying stories for his magazines because we specifically excluded short stories from her agenting. She was not my agent on short fiction. So that Ben was not buying from his wife and his wife would not get 10% of, of the price of stories he bought from me. Scrupulous man. But he was unfailingly kind, but also witty, humorous, but never at anyone's expense. I remember calling him. Yeah, this is the kind of nervous writer I was before he had answered me about a story that I was hoping he'd buy. I phoned him and said, do you have any idea when you're going to be able to get to that? Because I've got some bills coming due and I'm not rich and famous yet. I've got to know where my money's coming from. And uh, he said, he laughed and he said, oh, Scott, I am rich, rich and famous and I'm still worried about money all the time. <laughs> and I thought, okay, it's nice to know that I'm not alone. And it's a relief to know in a way that it never ends. 
that there's never enough money, you know, and, and it was later. No, ben was uh, even to the very end, uh, very in, in, engaged in making sure that we sent him his, his checks. And we oh, did. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And why not? Absolutely. I mean, if that's where you get your living, Heck, then I don't know you better get it. So, unfortunately, uh, Tony, I have to drop off. Uh, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. That, that, you all keep going. That, 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 uh, that day job thing is calling my name. All right, go so and design satellite, please, Les, and, and make sure they don't <laughs> fall on us, if you don't mind. Um, but I don't think your satellites would ever fall out of the sky. No, no, no. They might, unless they're, they're unless they were designed for, to. <laughs> with any luck, they're going to be out there for a million years. So uh, I'm Excellent. pretty excited Excellent. about that. So, yeah. All right, thank great. you. It's been fun. Thanks so much. It's been great to meet you, Les. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. See ya. So, and then while we were talking, I was on Amazon ordering a couple of Les's books. Uh, so, yeah, Les you know, is I great. Want, you I should also look at his TED Talk. Uh, he, he did a regional TED Talk. Oh, okay. He's really good um, explaining science concepts. We've had him do a lot of uh, – he has done a lot of science, fiction, uh, science fact articles for the Bain website as well. Cool. He's sort of our main uh, – Man, stuff you're, stuff about you're, space you're, guy. Yeah, your go-to science guy, at least about space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just feel a little bit odd having been in the presence of somebody who designs stuff and plans stuff, and then it gets into space. You know, who does that? You know, nobody of my acquaintance. Uh, well, Les does it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he, he's, he's. I believe he is the the most knowledgeable and the main guy that NASA has on solar cell technology. Wow. Um, and such. So um, he knows a lot about solar cells. I know. And he also headed up for a long time there, their sort of wish, uh, wish office of interstellar development. Like how could we actually get to the stars? Um, he did. Uh, he was, he was the guy that did that um, planning for them for a while as well. So he's, he's quite, quite a, modest but incredibly accomplished guy um happy to be associated with that's why we asked yeah. him to, to of course to uh, co-write the book but i feel that. like i i feel like i cheated your uh, audience by taking up so much time while he well, was still here but, we've had a lot of less on the podcast don't worry oh, i okay. always i have him on all the time <laughs> so. okay well i won't worry about it you don't have no, me don't worry about it. Time, so, so tell me about so you're mentioning like some stuff when did you first physically meet ben and how did that come how did that that, go? that was at the nebula awards uh weekend um the year that uh i mean that that's the summer after it came out the andrews game came out in analog so I was on the uh, Hugo and Nebula ballot. Uh, no, the Hugo ballot, not Nebula, but I was on the Hugo ballot for Ender's Game and also for the John W. Campbell Award. Uh, and, but I was going to this banquet where I would be having to sit at a table. Now, my idea of hell truly is being forced to sit and make small talk conversation with five strangers at a dinner table. That's just... If, you know, if I, if my sins are going to be punished, that's how it's done. Uh, because I'm an introvert. I'm an off the charts introvert. I can talk to an audience, you know, give me 5,000 people to talk to. Don't even give me a topic. I'll go. I'll just do it. But don't, don't make me sit with five individuals that I don't know. <laughs> I always just tell somebody at the table that I once met Orson Scott Card and we have something to talk about but yeah my problem is i, I can't use that one so uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right I'm, I'm the one person who can't but no it's my publisher does this to me all the time of course sends me to hell he 
has in the past, back when we had meetings and banquets and stuff, he uh, would trot me out to meet librarians or uh, booksellers or whatever. And uh, I had to make nice conversation with whoever was sitting by me. But uh, anyway, that was what I found with Ben is that no conversation would die if Ben was at the table. He would never leave you dangling as the last person who spoke. And as if it was, what you said was so stupid, nobody could think of anything to say. He always had something gracious to say. But it wasn't like he drove the conversation, like he was always leaping in. He never listened as if he was just trying to think of what he would say next. Quite the contrary. Unless you said something just outrageously stupid. Uh, in which case, he would cut in at a reasonable time and then kindly point out just exactly how stupid your idea was. Not you, but your idea. Why it wouldn't work. Why this was not valid, was not possible. And it was educational and never offensive because he was a kind and gracious man. Um, and he made you feel like you were the center of his attention in that moment. Yeah. That he, he was paying attention to you and yeah. listening to you in a way. So many people don't have that ability. No. It's one of the things I learned about signings. So many authors are introverts. It's, you know, who, who sits alone and types for hour after hour? Somebody who doesn't need to be talking to people all the time. And so I've seen many an author doing a signing where they just look down at the paper, never look up at the people. And they just sign, sign, sign. And I just think, why are you doing this? This is your chance to meet your readers. And so I made it a rule to kind of be like Ben. And I look them in the eye and I make conversation with them. And, and uh, not long. But I give him a smile that's a real smile. And, uh, and, you know, I use my acting training so that even when I don't feel like smiling, when I'm exhausted, they still get the full smile that gets all the way to my eyes because that's what they're there for. They don't care about me signing the book. They care about meeting the author. And the worst thing is they don't really want to meet me. What they want to meet is Andrew Wigan, and I'm not him. Yeah. And so, you know... <laughs> Or, or Alvin, yeah, Whoever but, but they uh, believe me, it's it's most it's mostly under. It's mostly. Um, but but see, Ben Ben was an example to me that the few times that we were together. Now this is the odd thing: his wife was my agent, and that first meal that we had together did he was become, did I wasn't the focus. Age? Go ahead, sorry. Uh, no, I wasn't the complete focus of the conversation. She was, because he couldn't take his eyes off her. They hadn't been married long. And they were developing all these, here's looking at you, here's mud in your eye, toasts with the various drinks they were having, something completely outside my experience as a Mormon. Uh, and so I had no idea what it, I still have no idea what it means when a character orders a Pinot Noir or a uh, Cabernet. have no idea what that would imply. It's like Diet uh, Mountain Dew mixed with, uh, you know, cool. Yeah, no, don't bother, don't bother <laughs> telling me, I won't remember. I know that that a screwdriver has vodka and orange juice. That's about my, the extent of my knowledge. I was and trying so, to come up with a Mormon analogy. Since yeah. I was, anyway, <laughs> we, don't, we don't drink yeah. Mountain Dew. It, it has to get too much caffeine. Anyway, okay. uh, I'm not, that's not a rule of the church. That's just a custom. But uh, anyway, the, the thing that I was aware of was he really loved Barbara and believed in her, but he believed in me so much that he thought it was important to get me as one of her first clients because he thought I had a future. 
And she did too. She had read uh, the, the stories that I had sent him and was ready to give me stuff. Now, here's the thing. Ben also was my first book publisher, my first book editor, because he had a deal with, um, I forgot, the Baronet, a new trade paper house uh, that was starting out with science fiction. This was before Tom Doherty had started a new mass market paper house with science fiction. So nobody thought it could be done, but the editor there thought it, thought it would. And so he made a deal with Ben to edit a line of science fiction. So Ben said to me, okay, um, do you have anything? These stories about these blue-eyed people, because by then he was seeing and publishing my, uh, my uh, uh, Worthing stories. He said, is there a novel in that? And it happened to be that, that I had plans for one. I had a plot for one. And, he's, and, he's, and what we did was I sold two books to Baronet. Sight unseen, I wrote nothing except that the stories existed. Uh, so I didn't even write a synopsis uh, of the book. They bought one novel and one collection of short stories. And uh, Sight unseen. And then Ben was my editor on them. I turned them in. He published them. He edited, but, but nothing major. And uh, so he was my first editor. And that was before uh, that, that deal was made, before Barbara was my agent. She would never have let me sign with Baronet as my agent because the money was too low and I had too little control. But they gave me two of the three worst covers I have ever had on any book of mine. Uh, and so they were, they were pulp magazine, pulp sci-fi magazine covers. But Ben didn't have any say over the covers. I think he wouldn't have gone that route. Um, and besides, they only illustrated scenes from my book, so it was my fault. If I didn't want that on the cover, I shouldn't have put the scene in my book. Um, but anyway, luridness was, was the, the word of the day. So Ben was there. Well, those analog the covers were great that he did have control. Uh, he absolutely, he absolutely did. He actually put my work together with a young artist named Janet Alicio. I have no idea if she's still doing art, if she's doing professional illustration, but she did gorgeous human art for the black and white interiors uh, of my stories. I think the first time one she did for me was uh, the art that went with Michael Songbird. And I just, I loved, I have several of her originals that I bought. And uh, I still think of her as one of the best illustrators that I ever worked with. And Ben is the one who found her for me. So he was taking care of me, even though we didn't hang out. How would he, we hang he out? He accepted your first award, didn't he? Something like... Uh, was it Australia, Worldcon? Uh, no, no, no. My first award was the Campbell Award, and that was in, in Phoenix, and I was there. You were I there. accepted it in person. And the next two, uh, one was in Britain, and, uh, of course, there was the Nebula in San Francisco. So one was in Brighton, and the other one wasn't. can't remember where it was. Anyway, uh, but it wasn't Australia. I was present for those. But I think Ben may have accepted an award, the award for... Uh, the novella Songhouse, or no, it was, it was not that. It was, anyway, a, a novella that I wrote um, in Australia. He might have done that for me because who else? Um, and so, uh, you know, he published the, uh, the original. Um, anyway, it, he, he was watching out for me. I had various social occasions, usually professionally oriented, like the Nebula Banquet or whatever, where I shared a table with him. 
he and Barbara arranged for me to sit with Bob Guccione at the Omni table. Uh, it was just Ben and Barbara and me and my wife and Bob and whoever he was with. Um, I dare not say wife because I have no idea anymore who she was. But uh, I also became aware of the guy standing nearby who looked like he could probably kill me if, it, if he felt like it, but uh, didn't feel like it. So he seemed cheerful enough. But uh, as Ben explained to me, he said, now this guy, when you sit down at the table, don't ask about him. He, his meal will be taken care of at another time in another place. But he carries all of Bob's ID and money. Bob carries nothing. If you rob Bob, all you can get is his coat, because his jacket, because there's nothing. Uh, this other guy carries it all, which I thought, wow, okay, that's both rich and paranoid. How wonderful. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, I never followed that practice, but it was fun. No, you don't have a guy like that now? No, I don't. No, and, well, actually, I married a woman like that. Uh, I see. <laughs> see I, I, don't, I don't carry a checkbook. You've got to understand. That was taken away from me very early, but I actually yielded it. I gave it. I said, please don't let me, don't make me carry this. Uh, I make too many arithmetic mistakes. So um, anyway, so Ben was there all through that time. I believed we were friends, and I think it's true, but we were friends in a certain category. I was never a hangout at a bar friend. How could I be? I didn't even go into bars. Uh, I was on panels at conventions. The programming was what I loved. And he didn't care much about that. Uh, so he was in the bar talking to people, making contacts, being a good editor, doing all those things, and seeing his friends uh, from the field. And I wasn't in that group ever. And so uh, in that sense, he and I didn't become friends. We didn't socialize in the most convenient way to get to know Ben. Uh, we met only in more formal settings. But every time I was with him, I felt cared for, cared about. And I also knew profoundly that he was the foundation of everything in my career, including getting me this tough as nails agent who quadrupled my income from fiction in a year and then took it on from there, who had a deal with foreign uh, agents that made it so that uh, I made half my income from abroad. My stuff was being translated from the beginning. Nobody gets that, but Barbara got it for me. So uh, I was well cared for by the two of them. And I'm sure that there were times, in fact, Barbara would often say, well, Ben says that they discussed what was going on with me. But Ben never took a role, uh, an open role in the agenting thing. And as he moved out of editing, he wasn't a market for me either. And so we had contact every now and then. I'd phone Barbara and reach Ben. Uh, and back in the days when people actually phoned instead of texting. And, uh, and so I found out the category I was in when he urged me not to come to Barbara's funeral. He says, we're, not, we're trying not to make a big deal out of it. And I understood that. You know, I've supervised a few funerals myself. And, uh, and so I didn't come. And I eventually met his new wife years later, when I happened to do a signing in Naples, Florida. And, uh, and Ben invited us to his house for uh, a meal. And uh, that was, that was it. That was it. I, that's, uh, the last time, that's the last time I saw him. The, 
the way that you describe him being around Barbara when they were newly together, that was the way he was around. He was just, it was like a new kid, you know, a new thing that a new romance for a kid, the way that he uh, had only had eyes for her when he was, uh, when he was hanging out with us. Well, I just have to say, Ben Bova knew how to fall in love and knew how to make sure that the object of his affection knew how much in love he was. And isn't that a gift? So many people lack that. Uh, they have ways of showing love, but the other person doesn't know how to interpret it. But with Ben, you just knew. And it was that laser-focused attention and, uh, and constant courtesy toward that person and everyone else, but her first. And that's kind of a wonderful thing about Ben. If he loved you, you were loved. Well, what did you, I mean, the... This ability to to be an outgoing person that so many of us, uh, you know, that started out as writers lack, he seemed to just have. Um, and and it, do you think there was a introvert inside somewhere? Yes. Um, oh, absolutely. He had all the attributes of introversion. You got to realize. Many of our most famous extroverts are, in fact, deep introverts. You know, think of Johnny Carson during the years that he dominated uh, the late-night talk show uh, circuit. Uh, he was a profound introvert. He just hated being around people and who made demands on him. He didn't want to talk to anybody, and yet he did a talk show. But everybody says that when, when they were doing a commercial, he said nothing to the guest nothing. Leno wouldn't shut up, but uh, Carson just didn't speak to them. He had nothing to say. He had no small talk. And that's the problem I have is I have no small talk. That's why I hate being trapped at a dinner, dinner table with strangers. Uh, but uh, Ben didn't have, wasn't eager to do small talk, but he knew how to be gracious. And so you got the feeling because he was listening so intently. See, my wife has a reputation as being a great conversationalist. And uh, a couple of years ago, she was driving somewhere uh, with, as her passenger, a person that has been one of her dearest friends for 15 years. And her friend said, you know, Christine, you know everything about me. And I know nothing about you. And Christine couldn't argue because Christine's way of conversing is to ask other people about themselves and to listen intently and to respond, making it clear that she's heard and that she remembers later. And I get the feeling that Ben was kind of more like Christine, except that he wasn't an extrovert as she used to be. She's not now, but uh, that, that he, he was able to sit alone and, and write and sit and read manuscripts endlessly without having to chat with anybody. That speaks of introversion. I've only known a couple of extroverts who were also successful writers. I have a niece who is doing very well with Amazon self-published fiction, and she is the most extroverted person I've ever known. But she also somehow miraculously can sit and type, and so she gets stuff done. But Ben took his introversion and use it, I think, to have empathy with introverted writers and make them feel comfortable. I think he had that idea that if I say something that would make me comfortable, it'll probably make them comfortable. But I never talked to him about his methodology. I was just too busy enjoying it. 
to talk about it. We didn't talk about, I didn't, we didn't talk about him. Uh, we didn't really talk about me. Uh, we talked about the work. And ideas, yeah. Well, what is, uh, let me let you sum up. Um, what is, uh, what, what would you say about Ben to, uh, to complete uh, a picture? I mean, you've painted this wonderful picture of him as he helped you. Uh, How, what else would I know? Yeah, yeah. What yeah. else would I know? I saw that he had so many friends at every science fiction convention. Everybody knew him. Everybody liked him. Uh, but nobody demanded anything from him, uh, especially after he was no longer the editor of Analog or Omni. Um, and so he moved through the world I saw him in as a uh, beloved uncle uh, that was close to a lot of people. A lot of people loved him, but uh, he didn't try to get any authority over them. He didn't try to get his way. As far as I knew, Ben never had a way that he wanted to get. Uh, he didn't just go with the flow. If he thought something was wrong, he'd say so. But it was never about his ego. So it's not that he had no ego. Of course he did. His name is on his books. He didn't publish them anonymously. Um, his name was on the masthead of the magazines he edited. But his ego never ruled his behavior. It never made him unkind. It never made him prickly. I never saw him disgruntled. I never saw any evidence that he knew how to hold a grudge. He would explain things to people who had misjudged someone. He would do it in a gentle way that you didn't feel corrected. So beyond the things that he wasn't, which is rude, self-aggrandizing, self, uh, pushy, um, it's hard to say anything except for just a good, good man. I think one thing to say about it is, and, and this is probably wrong of me to say, I haven't talked about this with Ken Bova, uh, who is now my uh, primary agent. Um, Ken was Barbara's son and had a different last name. He was Ken Rose when I first met him. But somewhere over the years, he changed his last name to Bova. Uh, with Ben's consent, I'm quite sure, and with his mother's consent. Uh, and so that should tell you something, that a person in a position to know Ben best and to be most irritated by him. Uh, I mean, a stepson, my gosh, uh, what, what would that be? You know, what a, what a tough thing. Now, he was an adult, I think, when they married. So it wasn't as if he was a 16-year-old begging for the keys to the car and Ben said no. But uh, still, the, allow, the level of affection and respect that Ben must have earned from Ken speaks volumes about the kind of man he was at home as well as out in public. So I just have to say that the world is a poorer place because Ben isn't in it. And uh, um, I know that he's probably still surprised to find out that he still exists. Uh, but, but that's, you know, that's, he's got to cope with that himself. You know, I warned him. But uh, uh, I just know that he is one of those to whom God could say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He took what he was given in life and he made not just the best of it, he blessed other people's lives with it. And so atheist though he was, he led really quite a Christian life in his treatment of other people. I've known few Christians who measured up 
to Christianity the way that the ideals of Christianity, the way that Ben did. And even though he had no belief in Christ, nevertheless, he had a belief in being kind and good. And that's how he lived. Yeah. And this belief in the future and the possibility of, of the good parts of technology, that's, uh, he never lost faith in that as well, I think. He no, no, he, uh, he always he believed in the perfectibility of man's ability to influence the world. Uh, he never subscribed to the environmentalist idea that whatever humans do is evil and must be undone. Uh, on the contrary, he thought, if we're making a mess of the planet, let's find a technology that allows us to clean it up. Uh, he knew that the hope of humankind was in our ideas and our engineering. And, uh, and he wrote accordingly, and he worked accordingly, and he made friends accordingly. And so um, his, his faith in the future, his idea of pursuing immortality, I just read a story, don't know if I take it seriously yet, about a drug that has taken aging mice and given them the mental ability of young mice, uh, the ability to learn that young mice have to learn quickly. And they're looking at the possibility that it might very well reverse all brain aging uh, with a, just a couple of little doses. And, you know, wait, miracle drug, yes, I'll take that. Uh, meanwhile, please look for a nice replacement for penicillin um, so that we can, can kill microbes again. But meanwhile, I'll take the one that lets me not keep deteriorating at the rate that I have been. Here's the thing. Was Ben ever senile? Did he ever lose it? Did he ever have any kind of dementia? I never saw evidence of it. I never saw him without good memory. I don't think he did. I mean, he was, I mean, he, he was up there um, and I was hanging out with him in his, in his late seventies. Yeah. There was no acuity loss there. Well, it's so he got to live a life like Isaac Asimov because Asimov was getting better and better as a writer. The older he got his best fiction writing was what he wrote and published just before he died. And if he'd kept living, I bet he would have been even better. He just became a richer, fuller, deeper writer. And I imagine that being the way that Ben was still approaching everything. His brain did not switch off. And, uh, and that's cool. That's cool. Neither did his fashion sense. Well, <laughs> we won't even talk about that. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I was ludicrous compared to him, but he never, ever addressed my attire. So that man was, I mean, he was, he dressed sartorially well. He was, uh, so, well, uh, I think that's probably, uh, I'll, I mean, we could go on and on and talk more about it, but uh, that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much. Um, well, it's been a pleasure. It, it, it pleases me very much to have had a chance to express publicly my feelings about Ben Boba because I loved the man, I admired the man, and I owe everything I have in my career to him. Uh, and I have the rejections from other editors to prove that he's the one who, who helped me make my way. So uh, thank you for giving me this chance. Thank you so much, Scott. We'll see you. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. 
Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising Vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. SLNS Quebec, Task Force 790, Beowulf System. We have a second launch, sir, Liang Tao Rutgers said quietly, and Vincent Capriotti looked across at him, then checked the time. Fourteen minutes had passed since the Defender's first launch, and he smiled in ironic amusement. The first launch had gone ballistic six minutes and 65,766,900 kilometers after launch. That sounded a hell of a lot like two separate drives with pretty close to standard endurance, which confirmed quite a lot of speculation back home. No one had any notion yet how it might be done, but it certainly sounded like the Mantis had managed to graft separate sets of impeller nodes into the same missile body without their eating each other before they were successfully brought online. Assuming that was what was actually happening, and if the missiles packed in a third stage with identical performance, they should resume their acceleration in roughly three more minutes and arrive three minutes after that, just over 19 minutes after launch. At least now I know how big an interval they figure their FTL systems can handle without the dispersed platforms, he thought almost whimsically. If they could have closed that interval any, they damned well would have done it. CIC makes it another 5,000, sir. Very impressive, Capriori replied. On the other hand, we'll be across the limit and gone by the time they can reach us. I'm sure they can figure that out for themselves. So this is probably intended to encourage us to keep moving right along, and to pick off any cripples, I suppose. But in the meantime, he looked at another display. Beowulf System, 19,913,317 kilometers from Beowulf orbit. The Astas had been launched 57 minutes earlier, They'd started their journey at an acceleration of a mere 15,000 kps squared, barely a crawl compared to the 46,000 kps squared a Mark 23 turned out at even its lowest acceleration bracket. On the other hand, they were far, far stealthier than any MDM ever built. In fact, they were no more than the mating of a slightly modified Explorator Recon drone with a cataphract C second stage. They retained all of the Explorator's original stealthiness, and their acceleration rates had been stepped down a bit further to make them even harder to detect. The result was something that was almost impossible to detect, even under acceleration, at ranges lower than 70 to 80 light seconds. Once it went ballistic, it was effectively invisible even to active sensors at anything above 500,000 kilometers, and Operation Fabius had taken steps to make them even harder to spot by sending a host of regular reconnaissance drones ahead of them, with an acceleration rate 30% higher than theirs, programmed to spread out and chatter back and forth. No one on the other side had noticed that the talkative recon drone stealth systems were working at no more than 80% of normal efficiency, 
and no one had suspected that their sole purpose was to attract any sensor systems to their impeller wedges, rather than the weaker, stealthier ones coming along behind. Nor had anyone on the other side realized Vincent Capriotti's battlecruisers hadn't been towing cataphracts when they crossed the hyperlimit. All their towing capacity had been devoted to the Astas, and their relatively low acceleration rate after the Astas launched had been designed solely to convince the system's defenders they were towing heavy cataphract loads for the attack on Cassandra they had absolutely no intention of making. The last thing TF-790 had wanted Skywatch or System Defense HQ to realize was that it had never intended to penetrate more than 4,500,000 kilometers inside the limit before turning and braking for the safety of the Alpha Bands at 90% of maximum power. Vincent Capriotti had nourished his private doubts about the elaborate deception plan, but it had worked almost perfectly. It wouldn't have been enough to save TF-790 from Mycroft without the unexpected assistance of Silver Bullet. For that matter, it might turn out that it still wasn't enough. The ops plan had worked to get all the bits and pieces to where they needed to be at the critical moments, however, and there was a certain irony in that. If the Mason alignment had realized that would happen, they wouldn't have needed to reveal Silver Bullet's existence or suggest their direct involvement in Fabius. Unfortunately, Benjamin Detweiler and his planners hadn't known how the original Fabius plans would be modified once Winston Kingsford realized what Asta could do. And so they'd expected the attackers to require all the help they could get on their run into the target. And the knowledge that there had been no way to hide their involvement, whatever happened, at least from the Grand Alliance, had made it even easier for Benjamin and his brothers to decide to tweak the original operations plan. The impeller endurance of the interference-running recon drones was measured in hours, even in days if it was husbanded properly. Ahasta's endurance was barely 10 minutes. At the end of that brief interval, its impellers went down forever, and it sliced onward through the void at a constant velocity of 88,260 kps, as invisible as the vacuum about it. But now, AIs aboard that shoal of invisible assassins noted that the time had almost come. They checked their targeting criteria and instructions against the take from their own sensors. Not nearly so good as a regular recon drones, but far better than any previous generation of Solarian missile, even the improved cataphracts had ever mounted. A few corrections were necessary, and they made them. Then they began the prep cycle. System Defense HQ City of Columbia, Beowulf Beowulf System Third stage activation in approximately 60 seconds, sir, Cheryl Dunstan-Meyer said quietly, and Corey McAvoy nodded without looking away from his comm connection to Gabriel Cadell-Markham. What could reasonably be described as a host of staggeringly senior spectators had gathered behind the defense director, watching the huge display in the enormous conference room deep within Beowulf Alpha, which 15 minutes or so of frenzied tech improvisation had turned into a repeater for the master plot in System Defense HQ. At least they broke off without throwing anything in system, Cadell Markham said, watching vectors bend and change. That's something. He grinned suddenly. And I am so going to give Hamish hell for the heart attack he gave me with that little scenario. Agreed, Sir Thomas Caparelli noted. Means we're not going to tag them with the second launch, though. He glanced at McAvoy and shook his head quickly. Not criticizing, Corey. I'd have done exactly the same thing, and you probably will pick off some cripples. 
And while I'd like to get more of them, I'm all in favor of scaring the ever-living hell out of them, too. The longer and the harder they keep on running, the better I'll like it. I'll second that. High Admiral Judyanikov's soft Grayson accent couldn't hide the iron implacability at the core of his voice. Especially the like to get more of them, I'm afraid. He bared his teeth. I'm sure Reverend Sullivan will have something to say to me about that the next time I see him. Don't worry, Judah. Michael Mayhew, Grayson's senior representative to the conference, told him with a smile. I've got connections. I'll run interference for you. I appreciate it, my lord, Yanukov said. On the other hand, I notice the reverend doesn't get diverted very easily. He does have a certain way about him, Mayhew conceded. Excuse me, McAvoy said, eyes scanning the assemblage. Have we figured out where Earl Whitehaven and Director Benton Ramirez Chu are? We're not sure. Cadell Markham shook his head, his expression wry. Flight control stuck them out in the boonies, and the last time I talked to Jacques, about five minutes ago, he and Hamish were delivering heartfelt maledictions upon one of the freight lift shafts while Sergeant Stimson worked on the control box. I don't think he'd quite gotten to the point of shooting it, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to find out he'd been maletizing it with the biggest damn hammer he could find. At any rate, they were stuck in one of the boom sections between the industrial annex, where they got docked, and the main habitat. Maintenance promises to get them out very soon now, but the people in charge of doing that seem to be just a little preoccupied. He snorted. Go figure. Yeah, I don't even have good contact with Hamish's Unilink at the moment, Caparelli said with an even broader smile. And I can tell you, he's going to be so pissed when he finds out all of us were watching the master plot at the moment. Status change, Dunstan Meyer said suddenly, and her face went white. Oh my God. Missile activation, many missiles, range to Beowulf orbit, 9.3 million kilometers, velocity 88,000 KPS, acceleration 961 KPS squared, impact 75 seconds. McAvoy stared at her for two heartbeats, then wrenched his eyes to the master plot. At least a thousand missile icons glared upon it, driving in on the inner system. CIC projected their vectors with merciless clarity, and the only good thing was that none of them were headed for the civilian habitats. They were driving in on Ivaldi of Beowulf and the other critical component manufacturers, and it came to him in an instant of total clarity. A diversion. The entire run on Cassandra was a fucking diversion, and we fell for it. We fell for it. But then he shook himself. They'd never seen this coming, and he hoped like hell they'd be able to figure out just how the Sallies had gotten their birds in this close before anybody got even a sniff of them. But thanks to the Iwata strike, they weren't quite mother naked. All block ships, activate now! That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the Aurora Borealis and all her little dancing electromagnetic friends, plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for Orson Scott Gard and Les Johnson in the comments and remembrances of the great Ben Bova. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars in the new year.